You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 131, 131 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. This episode will be dedicated to one of the most interesting characters of history and of alchemy, Paracelsus. Now, this is not some sort of official history uh, of his life. Uh, it's more a collection of interesting stories that I've gathered over the years about this guy. And I don't claim everything to be 100% accurate, as I've not studied every single document about his life or read every book, although I have read quite a few. And to be fair, who can say for sure about things that happened long ago? Paracelsus' story takes place about 500 years ago. But in my opinion, many of the things he said and wrote are still valid to this day, and we are greatly in his debt. Author and mystic Manly Palmer Hall had this to say about him. To Paracelsus, the world is indebted for much of their knowledge it now possesses of the ancient systems of medicine. Paracelsus devoted his entire life to the study and exposition of hermetic philosophy. Every notion and theory was grist to his mill, and while members of the medical fraternity belittle his memory now as they opposed his system then, the occult world knows that he will yet be recognized as the greatest physician of all times. While the heterodox and exotic temperament of Paracelsus has been held against him by his enemies and his wanderlust has been called vagabondage, he was one of the few minds who intelligently sought to reconcile the art of healing with the philosophical and religious systems of paganism and Christianity. Paracelsus' father was a German physician and chemist. Uh, his mother was from Switzerland and they uh, both lived in a little village close to Zurich. Their house stood near the route the pilgrims traveled year after year to the shrine of the Black Mother. And this was perfect for Paracelsus' father because he could treat many of these pilgrims from the hardship of wandering. Traveling in those days was not the same as traveling in our time, as you can understand. Two years into their marriage, Paracelsus was born, and they named him Philippus Ariolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. Some say that the word bombastic comes from Paracelsus' name Bombastus, because he, he was a sort of bombastic character. But according to what I have found, it seems to be just a coincidence. And why he would choose to call himself Paracelsus uh, when he became older is a mystery. Uh, it is believed he derived this name from a great 1st century Roman physician by the name of Celsus. And Paracelsus then could mean greater than Celsus or beyond self, uh, Celsus. Um, the exact date of birth is not clear. It, either it was like the 17th of December 1493 or uh, the 26th of November 1498. Nevertheless, uh, the world into which Paracelsus was born was changing. Europe was in the middle of what historians have dubbed the Renaissance. Uh, 
Diaz reached the Cape of Good Hope in 1486, about a decade earlier. Columbus uh, discovered America around his birth, 1492. Although we all know now that the Vikings had encountered the continent much earlier. And also, let's not forget the inhabitants of America who were already quite aware of its existence as they were living there. Anyway, uh, around also around Paracelsus' birth in 1496, Vasco da Gama opened up the sea route to India. And in China, a man used the first ever toothbrush. So no longer was the world thought of as a mass of land, but as a mass of water. Still, the dogmas of Galen prevailed in medicine, and Paracelsus would try throughout his life to oppose uh, many of those obsolete ideas. You see, Claudius Galenus of Pergamum or Galen, uh, he was a Greek physician, and his views would come to dominate European medicine for over a thousand years. Most of Galen's knowledge he gained from dissecting animals, uh, some while they were still alive, And also he gained knowledge from looking inside the wounds of gladiators. Even though he changed the view by Aristotle that the mind was in the brain and not in the heart. And uh, that arteries carry blood, not air. His knowledge is mostly flawed. For example, he spread the idea that bloodletting was a good treatment. Where you uh, bleed a person who is sick. Uh, But Galen himself was very much like Paracelsus, a man obsessed with finding out the truth. Uh, Galen said, From my very youth I despised the opinion of the multitude and longed for truth and knowledge, believing that there was for man no possession more noble or divine. But so revered became Galen's uh, knowledge and discoveries that it turned into a dogma that for 1500 years was the main source for European physicians studying the body, completely ignoring Galen's own suggestion. If anyone wishes to observe the works of nature, he should put his trust not in books on anatomy, but in his own eyes. It is thanks to Paracelsus and a few others that we finally get rid of Galen's teachings. Although Galen had some valid ideas and theories, the major A problem with Galen was his use of bloodletting in order to cure a patient. Allowing a sick person to bleed is perhaps not the best way to heal someone. Although in certain occasions, uh, like leeches or sucking out the blood can work, but in general, you know, if you got pneumonia, maybe you shouldn't, like, drain the body of a a liter of blood. Uh, And it, it was in his youth that Paracelsus became interested in the writings of alchemist Isaac of Holland, and as a result he became determined to reform the medical science of his day. And this of course also came from the fact that both his parents were interested in medicine and chemistry. His father had uh, taught him how to see nature with his own eyes, just like Galen says, and uh, he turned Paracelsus into a great observationalist. He also learned from his father a great deal about biology, surgery, the basics of medicine, alchemy, and chemical and metallurgical principles. At the end of the 15th century, the art of the physician was a secretive and lucrative business. Perhaps he hasn't changed that much since then. 
Leonardo da Vinci said on the matter, Strive to preserve your health, and in this you will better succeed in proportion as you keep clear of physicians, for their drugs are a kind of alchemy concerning which there are no fewer books than there are medicines. To fight uh, such dogma as the physicians of the time were spreading, you have to be a stubborn man, or at least fully invested in an alternative way of looking at medicine and healing. And Paracelsus was uh, such a man. When he was nine years old, his mother Elsa committed suicide by jumping off a bridge. And after this disaster, his father moved in 1502 to Villas in Carinthia, Carinthia, where he accepted a position as a physician. Uh, and he took, of course, Paracelsus with him. And Villas was a mining village where Paracelsus would spend the rest of his childhood. And it's located in the southern regions of what is today known as Austria. Later in his life, Paracelsus would write about his upbringing. And he wrote, By nature I am not subtly spun, nor is it the custom of my native land to accomplish anything by spinning silk. Nor are we raised on figs, nor on mead, nor on wheat and bread, but on cheese, milk and oat cakes, which cannot give one a subtle disposition. Moreover, a man clings all his days to what he received in his youth, and my youth was coarse as compared to that of the subtle, pampered and over-refined. For those who are raised in soft clothes and in women's apartments, and we who are brought up among the pine cones, have trouble in understanding one another well. So you see, Paracelsus was uh, a child of the working class. And the physicians in those days uh, definitely were part of the upper class. So already from the start there was a conflict. Paracelsus learned from churchmen versed in medicine and occult lore. And uh, he also trained in uh, a mining school as an analyst. Uh, But at the age of 14 he decided he wanted to become a doctor. So he left home to go to medicine school. And he was destined for a life of constant squabblings with the dogmas of his day. You see, over the next five years, Paracelsus attended several prestigious universities throughout Europe. But he found no teacher he could respect. He wrote, How have the high colleges managed to produce so many high asses? The universities do not teach all the things, so a doctor must seek out old wives, gypsies, sorcerers, wandering tribes, old robbers and such outlaws and take lessons from them. A doctor must be a traveler, for knowledge is experience. Asot is the essential agent of transformation in alchemy, the philosopher's stone, which contains the complete information of the whole universe just as a healthy dose of psychedelic does, in my opinion. And legend tells us that the 16th century alchemist Paracelsus achieved the Asoth. But with any famous alchemist that has been claimed to have achieved the stone, there is little proof that they ever did. Although in Paracelsus' case, there is an interesting story in regard to this that fits my own line of thinking of what the stone actually is. 
Paracelsus traveled far and wide in search of knowledge, and there are many tales of his adventures. One story in particular is very interesting, and it takes place around the same time that Martin Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. You see, Paracelsus was visiting Moscow for some reason, that we don't know, in the winter of 1520-21. And Tartars from the northern coast of the Black Sea captured him. Philip Ball writes in his biography on Paracelsus called The Devil's Doctor. He wrote, As he was taken back through the Ukraine to the Crimea, he found a way into the confidence of his captors. It is said that the Tartars regarded a healer as a holy man, which is just how Paracelsus saw it too. He demonstrated his skills in medicine and surgery, and in return it seemed that this western doctor discovered marvelous things in the traditions of the Tartars. Their medicine was shamanic rooted in faith and imagination, as well as drawing on herbal remedies. Perhaps the Tartars gave Paracelsus a heavy dose of Azoth. (laughs) Regardless, Paracelsus writes in the Aurora of the Philosophers, It should be remarked that those common preparations of Geber, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, Rupesissa, Polydorus and such men are nothing more than some particular solutions, sublimations and calcinations, having no reference to our universal substance which need only the most secret fire of the philosopher. Let the fire and Asoth therefore suffice for you. And, you know, to smoke DMT, you need fire. Um, A shaman once told me all I need is the heart, which could also be seen as the fire. The heart and Asoth. Is this what Paracelsus means? Perhaps it is heresy to assume Paracelsus had anything to do with allegorical and so-called spiritual alchemy. That he was only concerned with practical matters. Physical matters. But, you see, Paracelsus wrote... He who is born in imagination discovers the latent forces of nature. Besides the stars that are established, there is yet another imagination that begets a new star and a new heaven. Columbus was now long dead, followed by the deaths of such famous people as Leonardo da Vinci, Magellan and Vasco da Gama. The world had lost many of its discoverers. Around Europe, witches were still hunted, accused, and burned. It was during this time in history that Paracelsus would begin to make his mark. In the town of Basel in Switzerland, the famous book printer Johann Froben suffered horrible pains in his right foot from an accident. And the doctors uh, that were present advised him to amputate. Froben knew of the wandering physician Paracelsus and decided to get a second opinion. So in 1526, Paracelsus arrived at Basel and managed to treat and cure the patient without the use of a knife. One of the most insightful quotes by by Paracelsus is the following. If you prevent infection, nature will heal the wound all by herself. Now we know this... uh, quite well in our modern age, but uh, back then this was revolutionary. So Paracelsus cured uh, Froben, he didn't have to amputate his leg, and uh, the job of town physician 
uh, was vacant, so Paracelsus was offered the position, which also entitled him to give lectures at the university. But this quiet little town wasn't quite ready to understand and accept such a free-thinking spirit as Paracelsus, with a uh, violent temper. Although, uh, from his writings, he, he was a pacifist, but he could easily become angry when he encountered uh, stupidity. The professors did not like Paracelsus from the start because he refused to take the Hippocratic oath that, among other things, made the physician swear that he would guard his professional knowledge. Having already declared himself Paracelsus and publicly burned books by Galen and Avicenna, which he threw into a student bonfire on St. John's Day, uh, he would not last long uh, in this job. Paracelsus also, as the first man to do so, wrote uh, scientific books in the language of the common people, which did not agree with the establishment where everything was written in uh, Latin. Not only this, Paracelsus shockingly had an open-door policy to his lectures, which he gave in German and not in Latin, using the opportunity to make fun at the medical dogma calling physicians couch-sitters who did not consider the needs of the patient, only the patient's wallet. His own, the doctor's own cap, he said, had more learning in it than all the heads in the university. So he... Paracelsus thought that knowledge should be knowledge f- about healing should not be a secret. Uh, the point of healing is to heal, and uh, I think the medical profession has not changed much because you know you don't go to the hospital to be healed; you go to the hospital to uh, make your symptoms go away or to make the pain go away, not to like get rid of the disease. At least in my opinion. Paracelsus labeled contemporary medicine a whore and declared that the practice of bleeding or bloodletting was barbaric, insisting that wounds dressed in moss and dung caused infection and prevented draining. Paracelsus' approach was more holistic, spiritual, and, at least to me, logical, and in a sense some of his his methods are still considered alternative today. Although the medical profession has advanced a great deal since Paracelsus' time, it is still, like I said, more focused on removing symptoms rather than healing the body from the disease. For me, Paracelsus embodies the ethos of the punk. He was certainly not mainstream, and if he knew words like fuck off, I'm sure he would have used them. Author uh, Kurt Vonnegut famously said, A sane person to an insane society must appear insane. Even though this was the Renaissance, it was still a crazy time. No less so than today, I guess. But back then, women were burned at the stake for using simple alternative medicine. And today, children are enslaved, raped and murdered in the Congo, mining for minerals used in electronic products, just so kids in the Western world can play video games. So, has things improved? I'm not so sure. Paracelsus could not stand by silently and watch the insanity around him. Like a true punk rocker, he protested. And everything was under his attack. About physicians, he wrote, All they can do is prudently observe the patient and make their guesses about his condition. And the patient may rest satisfied if the medicines administered to him do no no serious harm. 
and do not prevent his recovery. The best of our popular physicians are the ones that do least harm. But unfortunately, some poison, poison their patients with mercury, others purge or bleed them to death. There are some who have learned so much that their learning has driven out all their common sense. And there are others who care a great deal more for their own profit than for the health of their patients. A disease does not change its state to accommodate itself to the knowledge of the physician, but the physician should understand the causes of the disease. A physician should be a servant of nature, not her enemy. He should be able to guide and direct her in her struggle for life and not throw, by his unreasonable interference, fresh obstacles in the way of recovery. Many rumors began to spread about him, mainly to try and discredit his work. Paracelsus was accused of being an alcoholic despite the fact that he possessed a stunning mental clarity and produced vast amounts of written material. Whether this is an exaggerated fact or a complete lie, Paracelsus was the victim of envy. And he, he did bring about many remarkable cures that could not be argued. The most common diseases of his day were treated by him and, it is said, and he is said to have cured leprosy, cholera, even cancer. All but raising the dead. Yet it wasn't only his brain that caused ridicule, his appearance did too. Paracelsus' head was dis- disproportionately large, his torso pear-shaped, his hips were wide and feminine and his lips protrude- protruding. And rumors began to spread that he was actually a woman or a eunuch. He was with all likelihood uh, ridiculed for his looks. And uh, his famous rude and self-praising behavior maybe was a natural result of, of being bullied like this. Women treated him the same and there is no recorded or known love affair. Perhaps his lack of a relationship with the opposite sex could be explained by how he was treated by them. Uh, That they saw him as ugly. But this is impossible to know. But um, maybe the suicide of his mother uh, caused him some mental anguish and uh, distanced himself from, from women. Or he was gay, who knows. It is very difficult for a man or a woman that wishes not to belong to the dogma and tradition of their day. Uh, And even more so when there is no theoretical or practical body of knowledge that can counter the heavy weight of the tradition looming above that you want to reject. Uh, Paracelsus uh, was a man ahead of his time, filled with the knowing that he was right, but empty of proof that he was. If you don't think the patient he cured were proof enough, that is. In the same manner that Martin Luther opposed the Pope, Paracelsus opposed the Pope of medicine, Galen. Or more precise, Galenism. Paracelsus was a humanist, considering his patient as a human being, realizing that individualization is necessary, especially with mental disorders because it is a highly individual phenomenon. He wrote, As long as one wishes to ride all horses with one saddle and recognize not disease in its essence, but rather what comes into each man's head is his art, there is yet no experience nor truth established. To follow Galen was to be professional, and since Paracelsus didn't, he wasn't considered serious enough. In the matter of mental diseases, Paracelsus was centuries ahead. 
Mental disorders was, for a long time, considered to be a matter for theology and not of medicine. In fact, the traditions of treating mental disorders were not abandoned until 200 years after Paracelsus had died. There is a mystery on how Paracelsus received his great knowledge on the illness of the mind. Nothing of what he wrote was practiced in the times he lived, and he anticipated the descriptive methods of psychiatry and the clinical manifestations of epilepsy, mania and hysteria. He truly possessed a complete intellectual freedom, not afraid to admit whenever he came across something new. Paracelsus lists four kinds of insane people. The first one is lunatici or lunatici, lunacy, basically. Uh, the moon does not possess the brain, but attracts like a magnet reason out of the brain. And the power of attract- attraction is at its height during the full moon and somewhat during the new moon. And I can personally say there is a lot of truth in this because I always suffer insomnia during the full moon. And if you've ever taken psychedelics during a full moon, you might know, as I do, that they are always more potent. And there are some statistics I've seen that uh, documents how crime increased during the full moon and stuff like that. So uh, there is some there is some truth, I think, to lunacy in this way. Then he, he mentions the uh, the second type of insanity, which is insani, insanity, which is brought from the womb through family heritage. So basically, this is like uh, uh, a mental illness that you inherit, which we all know is uh, fully possible in uh, in our day and age. Vesani uh, is uh, the third type of insanity uh, or mental illness. Uh, which is the loss of reason and sense through the use of food and drink, which is also something we know about uh, these days. Uh, and the fourth and last one is melancholiki, melancholia. Uh, people who lose reason by their own nature, by driving the spiritus vitae up towards the brain so that it is too much of it there. And this is also true because people who are depressed or melancholic, you know, they think too much, basically. I think these four types of mental illness still stand strong today. The Catholic Church banned Paracelsus' ideas, as you would expect. And even though Paracelsus was a born Catholic, he denounced public prayers, church-going, bowing, saint worship and observance of church rules. On an essay on nymphs, he clearly expressed his views. There are more superstitio in the Roman church than in all these women and witches. And so it may be a warning that if superstitio turns a man into a serpent, it also turns him into a devil. That is, if it, is, if it happens to nymphs, it also happens to you in the Roman church. That is, you too will be transformed into such serpents. You who now are pretty and handsome, adorned with large diadems and jewels... In the end, you will be a serpent and a dragon. That the Roman church didn't burn him uh, alive uh, surprises me, uh, considering the way he speaks about them. Uh, It doesn't mean that uh, Paracelsus was an atheist. He he believed in God. He just, you know, didn't believe in uh, this type of organized religion. Paracelsus approved of Martin Luther's reformation, but he took no part in it. His uh, individualism clashed with the dogmas of the church because he believed in self-reliance. He wished people would realize their inherent godhood. The divine 
wisdom is a greater power than that which saints and gods can give. Only through the abandonment of personal self can man see and feel the presence of God within, rising above illusions into truth. He wrote, Try to understand yourself in the light of nature, and then all wisdom will come to you. The Renaissance saw a rise in interest of science and medicine. Great lengths were taken to create new translations of such respected authors as, as uh, Aristotle, Galen, Hippocrates, Ptolemy, uh, because the Latin translations of the Middle Ages were no longer acceptable. Some of these trans- translators studied Greek, so they could directly do justice to these ancient treasures. But the hunt for original manuscripts led to the d- discovery of new ones. The recovery of the Corpus Hermetica was a major event for all intellectuals, especially Paracelsus, who found great knowledge in the Emerald Tablet. Scorning his fellow doctors, he stated that the ancient Emerald Tablet shows more art and experience in philosophy, alchemy, magic and the like than could ever be taught by you and your crowd of followers. Paracelsus tried to apply the principles of the Emerald Tablet everywhere he could, and he wrote a great deal on the subject, openly preaching the correspondences between the above and the below, careful not to say too much. To write more about this mystery is forbidden and further relevations into the prerogative of the divine power. For this art is truly a gift of God, wherefore not everyone can understand it. If you want to um, understand more about the Emerald Tablet, check out episode 75, which is dedicated completely to it. Anyway, Paracelsus considered magic to be supreme wisdom and not sorcery. A person that is a master of heaven and earth by his own free will is called a magus. He wrote, There is nothing dead in nature. Everything is organic and living. Therefore, the world appears to be a living organism. According to Paracelsus, life exists in every form, moving slower in the mineral kingdom and rapidly in the plants and animal kingdoms. Nature is an organism where all things harmonize and sympathize with each other. Man is the microcosm and nature is the macrocosm, and together they are one. And the unity of man and nature is the heart through which the physical, astral and spiritual forces manifest themselves. Paracelsus popularized the notion of these three heavenly forces and was one of the first to call them salt, sulfur and mercury. When the three substances were in harmony, health was the result. If in disharmony, the result was disease. And if in disruption, the result was death. And salt is the physical body. Sulfur is the indwelling, energizing nature, the astral man. And mercury is the intelligence, the indwelling God, the spirit that is above salt and sulfur. So it's like uh, the trinity basically. There is one vital substance in nature upon which all things subsist. It is called the archaeus, or vital life force, and is synonymous with the astral light or spiritual air of the ancients. The vehicle for the archaeus, Paracelsus called the mumia. A good example of a physical mumia is a vaccine, which is a vehicle of a semi-astral virus. In other words, anything that serves as a medium for the transmission of the archaeus, organic or inorganic, 
truly physical or partly spiritualized, was termed mumia. The most universal form of mumia was ether. You could also call it chi or ormus, some people call it these days. Uh, there are many names for it. And uh, modern science has somewhat accepted uh, ether as a hypothetical substance serving as a medium between the realm of vital energy and that of organic and inorganic substance. But generally, m- modern science reject any such ideas, at least from my understanding. It is virtually impossible to control universal energy through one of its vehicles, the mummia. Man does not secure nourishment from dead animal or plant organisms, but when he incorporates their structure into his own body, he first gains control over the mummia, or etheric double of the animal or plant. Having obtained this control, the human organism then diverts the flow of the archaeus to his own uses. I'm not sure you are following this, but uh, I am, and it's pretty interesting, I think. So basically, to recap, um, the most vital substance in nature is the archaeus. It's like the vital life force. And, uh, But, you know, you can't connect to the this vital life force without some sort of vehicle. Um... Uh, and this vehicle is what Paracelsus calls uh, mumia. For example, if we eat the flesh of a ferocious animal, we would become ferocious ourselves. The mumia of any creature, according to Paracelsus, is closely connected to the bloodstream. So any substance uh, that enters the bloodstream makes a direct connection with, with the vehicle of the vital life force from the person or animal that it was taken from. So basically, if uh, you eat a pig, you become a pig. Um, You are what you eat. Basically, it's a simplified way of saying it. Paracelsus wrote, That which constitutes life is contained in the mummia, and by imparting the mummia, we impart life. Paracelsus also talks about talismans and amulets, which is like a channel to connect the person wearing them with certain manifestations of the universal life force, the the archaeus. And uh, he declared that uh, the mummia, you know, the vehicle for the vital life force of a person may be strengthened by the power of imagination, which is a tremendous force able to create actual images of in the astral light, and to give a kind of consciousness to those forms. He wrote, Imagination is a great power, and if the world knew what strange things can be produced by the power of imagination, the public authorities would cause idle people to go to work. So to me, he sounds pretty psychedelic, but, you know, maybe I'm projecting my own uh, beliefs onto him. Paracelsus saw the mind as the most powerful healing power and he stressed the importance of the patient's thoughts and emotions um, when introducing the concept of holistic healing. He was certain everything in the universe was good for something. So, you know, um, he used the placebo effect to his advantage because there's nothing wrong with the placebo effect. Uh, If it cures the patient, it works. And maybe the placebo effect works because the mind is the actual can actually cure anything. At his estate in Hohenheim, Germany, 
processors gathered dew during certain configurations of the planets on glass plates at midnight, discovering the water possessed medicinal virtues, absorbing the properties of the heavenly bodies. But as popular as astrology was in his day, he did not fully endorse it. The stars determine nothing, incline nothing, suggest nothing. We are as free from them as they are from us. The stars and all the firmament cannot affect our body, nor our color, beauty and gestures, not on our virtues and vices. The course of Saturnus can neither prolong or shorten a man's life. The magnet applied to Paracelsus, and he referred to it as the monarch of secrets, placing it above all other remedies. He explored magnetism and its relation to the human organism at, at length. Later his work would inspire the great and neglected Anton Mesmer, whose tale is worthy of an episode all on his own, I think. On the subject of magnets he wrote, The magnet, like the stars and other bodies of the universe, is endowed with a subtle emanation, fluidum, that has a favorable influence on the health and life of man. It assures cure for discharging sinuses of the limbs, for fistula of the various parts of the body, for fluxes of the eye, ear and nose, and for jaundice and dropsy. It stops hemorrhaging disturbances in women. A high priest had promised Paracelsus a large sum if he was cured from an abdominal disorder. And when Paracelsus cured him with a few laudanum pellets, the churchman refused to pay. Paracelsus took him to court, basically sued him, and he lost. Let's digress a bit and talk about laudanum. I want to quote the Wikipedia entry on this substance. Paracelsus discovered that the alkaloids in opium are far more soluble in alcohol than water. Having experimented with various opium concoctions, Paracelsus came across a specific tincture of opium that was of considerable use in reducing pain. He called this preparation laudanum, derived from the Latin verb laudare, to praise. Initially, the term laudanum referred to any combination of opium and alcohol. Indeed, Paracelsus' laudanum was strikingly different from the standard laudanum of the 17th century and beyond. His preparation contained opium, crushed pearls, musk, amber and other substances. One researcher has documented that laudanum, as listed in the London Pharmacopoeia of 1618, was a pill made from opium, saffron, castor, ambergris, musk and nutmeg. Here is another psychedelic link with Paracelsus, nutmeg. If, If indeed he used nutmeg for his laudanum pellets. In large doses, raw nutmeg has psychoactive effects. But please, don't run out into the kitchen and eat some if you have any at home, because it isn't very safe unless you know what you're doing. Paracelsus was not even understood by his own students at the University of Basel. He was antagonized by his college, squabbling with everybody, infuriating many doctors, and finally when his only ally, Froben, the guy he he cured from having his leg amputated, when he died in 1527, Paracelsus had to flee for his life, leaving all his manuscripts behind him. He wrote... Why do you throw it in my face if I cannot cure impossible things when you, when you cannot cure the possible, but rather ruin it so that I must build it up again? How can I cure a cut-off heart, 
put a cut-off hand back on. Paracelsus, poor and homeless, lodged with friends, revising his ideas and hoping for a chance to publish them. His treaty on the disease of minors would become the starting point of a new line of medical literature and was the first ever monograph written on an occupational disease. He declared from his extensive experience that the disease of minors were caused by dust particles and not by the mountain spirits upset by their mining. As the first physician to realize that the agent that makes a man sick can also cure him, if administered in small doses, he foreshadowed the modern concepts of vaccination and homeopathy. Paracelsus saw poisons as chemical compounds and introduced the notion of proper dosage. One of his most famous quotes is as follows. All things are poison and nothing is without poison. Only the dosage makes a thing not poison. He brought chemistry into medicine and experimented with hydrogen and medicines containing sulfur, copper and iron, even curing syphilis with mercury compounds. The preparations of antimony, he wrote, vary with the diseases for which it is administered. That which is used for wounds differs from that which is applied in the case of leprosy. And so of the rest. To take the same preparation of antimony both in wounds and in leprosy would be a serious error. Again, he's talking about healing people individually, not using the same uh, medicine for everybody, regardless of what disease they have. As I've already mentioned, he discovered laudanum, or at least was one of the earliest to use it. So he, d- he, he did many things, and he uh, contributed a lot to, to the advancement of medical of the medical profession, even if it took uh, many years after his death for people to open their eyes. And uh, in some cases, they still haven't opened them properly. Bishop Palantine of Salzburg offered Paracelsus asylum in 1541. The town had once expelled him, but uh, he accepted the invitation anyway without any real choice. Whilst staying in a small room in the White Horse Inn on the 24th of September 1541, he died poor and alone. He wrote, A man's death is nothing but the end of his daily work, an expiration of air, the consummation of his own balsamic curative power, the extinction of the rational light of nature, and a great desperation of the three, body, soul and spirit, a return to the womb. After a quick burial at the St. Sebastian Church in Salzburg, they found a will and, and in it uh, his assets were distributed to charity. Uh, but nothing was mentioned of what was to be done with his many manuscripts that were spread across all the cities of Europe. Uh, one year later, uh, Copernicus published on the revolution of heavenly spheres, prom- proposing that the sun is at the center and that the planets, including the earth, orbit around it. Andreas Vesalius, one year later after that, published his work on the structure of the human body. It established the standard for anatomical works for many centuries and was the real beginning of the end for Galen and Galenism. Thus, the understanding of the universe continued. And... Like many alchemists before and after, Paracelsus was reported to be seen in several places after his own death, having achieved immortality by producing the Philosopher's Stone. 300 years later, his grave was exhumed and the body was found and identified as his own. 
and revealing no true cause of death. Immortal or not, his legacy lives on. As he himself wrote, Eternal wisdom is without time, without a beginning and without an end. During a cholera epidemic in Austria in 1830s, uh, hundreds of people visited Paracelsus' grave hoping to be cured. And even today, some kneel by his tomb, which is a broken pyramid of white marble, praying for cures. So even though he was ignored by the rich, um, he was canonized by the poor. Paracelsus wrote, Because we know that our kingdom is not of this earth, we need no more than enough food and clothing. And we cannot take it with us. We should enrich ourselves in works and virtues, which will follow us into the next world. It is clear from my perspective on this side of history that Paracelsus walked the talk. Uh, Contrary to the Egyptians who buried themselves with all their gold possessions and sometimes even with their servants, uh, Paracelsus was buried only with his deeds in life, a life dedicated to healing the sick. Paracelsus was independent, self-confident, bold and struggling to break free from the chains of tradition. Paracelsus tried to understand and explore the truth of the universe before knowledge or language had come of age to formulate what he sought. Nothing can be harder to do this, um, and therefore the greater respect should be given to a man who tried to fill the dark with light when everybody was blind. It is extremely easy for us now to see when Paracelsus was right and when others were wrong, But it is even easier to forget and ignore those very same kind of people that are shouting loudly in our society at the moment for an audience. Shouting at the idiocy of the dogma that is ruling our current society. And even still the dogma of our healthcare institutions. So if there is a Paracelsus out there right now, maybe listen to him or her. Give them your ear. Well... I hope uh, you got something from that and uh, you found it somewhat interesting. Uh, You know, Paracelsus was considered a madman by his contemporaries. And as I mentioned earlier, in an insane world, the sane seem insane. And because of this, I want to close this episode with a track by Lars Eriksson called Madman's Blues from the album Inconsequencia. Check out more of his music at uh, soundcloud.com forward slash Larus, L-A-R-U-S. And I also post the link to his Facebook in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Before I uh, leave you all, let me finish with one final quote by Paracelsus. Let no man belong to another who can belong to himself. Freedom is in the mind. Oh, if I was the one, I'd be like you If you were a man, you'd do the same thing too 